Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Depending on where you live, warmer winters can mean less and less snow. In some places, it's only one or two degrees that can make a difference. Measuring snow seems simple, right? For every snowfall we get, newscasters report how many inches we've got and even what kind of snow it is. Fluffy white stuff, perfect for snowmen making, skiing and sledding, or mushy slush, which is perfect for pretty much nothing. Scientists say measuring snow and snow loss is harder than we think. Joining us today are two scientists looking at the data around snow in our region and beyond to start calculating how much snow loss is impacting us and what it means for our environment. Here with me now is Alex Gottlieb. He's a PhD candidate at Dartmouth College working in ecology, evolution, and society. He does modeling with the Climate Modeling and Impact Group. He's also the lead author on the study, Evidence of Human Influence on Northern Hemisphere Snow Loss. Thanks for being here, Alex. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. And we also have Justin Mankin with us. He's an associate professor of geography at Dartmouth and the director of the Climate Modeling and Impact Group. And he's also the senior author of the study. Thank you so much, Justin, for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. And for our listeners, let us know if you're seeing less snow around where you live. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Alex, before we start, we have to point out that it's actually been pretty cold outside recently, and we've been getting a little bit more snowfall. So I think it's kind of funny that we're having this conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the reasons that it has felt so noticeably cold to us these last couple of weeks, we've been having a similar cold snap up here in New Hampshire, where I'm sitting that just thankfully broke today was because it's been such an incredibly mild winter so far through November and December and the first part of January. So these temperatures, actually, when you look at the data, are about normal for what things should be this time of year, but it feels incredibly cold given how warm of a winter we've had so far. Right. And we'll definitely get into more details about that trend that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years. But I want to also get to first, you know, talk about what was the inspiration for this paper? You know, what made you all want to look at snow snow loss uh, specifically? Sure. I think to back up a step and think about why snow has been such a really interesting area of inquiry, both for this paper and the research that Justin and I have done together more broadly, As someone who's lived in relatively cold, snowy places my whole life, just talking to people, friends, family, everyone has their kind of anecdotal stories about winters aren't as cold and snowy as they used to be, or we always used to be skiing by Thanksgiving, or every Christmas was a white Christmas. And it just was really obvious that it's this thing that we use really intuitively to kind of benchmark the advance of warming and how the world around us is changing. And so as a scientist, 
the natural question is, do the data back up these stories that, you know, we seem to pretty nearly universally tell ourselves about warming and what it's doing to snow? I'm just smiling because I love that you mentioned, well, what is the data to back up these stories that I'm, I'm growing up with and an experience that you're having? And also, I think the experience that a lot of people have had growing up as well. And, and Justin, can you respond to what Alex just said? You know, how did any prior research inspire you to look into all this? Or do you have a similar experience where, well, this is what I've experienced all, all my childhood, but I also need data to back up these stories? Yeah, Um I think Alex's motivation is is definitely shared by me. I I grew up in Vermont. Um, I grew up skiing. Um, when I went to to graduate school out in California, um, I was you know kind of began my dissertation work investigating snow accumulation in the Hindu Kush in, in Afghanistan and its its influence on a water availability there. Um, and that theme of of snow as this this resource for people and ecosystems, um, you know that that's been a leitmotif throughout my career. My my first you know scientific publications were on snowpack and and the kind of confounding case it presents um, if we want to use it as a kind of canary in the coal mine for warning us about the advance of global warming. Um, and 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 really, my my investigations have always kind of been about the, this confounding, um, you know, aspect of snow, right? That that we all have this really tangible experience with it, um, uh, and this this deep physical intuition, right? It's cold, and it accumulates. If it's warm, it melts. Um, but why that's really challenging to kind of both document and then attribute to particular causes, right? The, the, the melting and or its accumulation, it's difficult to attribute to, uh, to particular drivers um, kind of at the earth system scale. Um, and, and so really that's, that's where I, I was kind of coming to snow from was, was this crucial role it plays in, in our water supply um, and, um, and the challenge of kind of disentangling year-to-year variations in in climate from, you know, the trends induced by human-caused global warming um, in accounting for, you know, why it's cold um, in some years and you get a lot of snowpack and and why it's warm in others and and you have a snow drought. Um, And all that's undergirded by this, you know, deep personal connection I I have to snow as as a skier and, and a Vermonter. And we'll get into the various reasons why this is challenging and how the trends that we've been seeing is impacting our environment and our ecosystem. But I want to start by talking about the idea that measuring snow is a lot more complicated than we think. So, Alex, I want to turn this to you real quick. You know, when we think about measuring snow, I think we kind of think about going out there outside, you know, putting a ruler on the ground to measure the snowfall, but it's not as simple as what I'm thinking. So can you talk about what are some of the challenges that you've observed trying to measure snow? Sure. So it really depends what aspect of snow you're trying to measure. Things like binary, yes, there's snow on the ground, no, there isn't. What we call snow cover is pretty easy to observe. We can take pictures of the Earth from space using satellites and look and see, yes, the ground is white, no, it isn't. And that gives us a pretty good sense of how much snow is covering the Earth at any given point in time. And because of that ease of measurement, 
that's something that we've been able to document pretty clearly how climate change has been reducing snow cover year on year. The quantity that Justin and I look at in this paper, what we call snowpack or snow water equivalent, is if you were to go outside right now, if you're somewhere where there's snow on the ground and melt all that snow, how much water would you have? And this is a quantity that we really care about from a water supply and water security perspective, because as you accumulate snow through the winter, that snowpack is storing water, which is going to be melting out in the spring and feeding your streams and rivers and soils and providing water for things like irrigation for agriculture or generation of hydroelectric power or just your domestic municipal water supply. And so it's really the amount of water stored in snow that we care about, um, at least for the purposes of this study. And it turns out that that's a much more challenging thing to measure. There are a handful of ways that we've done it historically. One is pretty close to what you described, where you know, you're maybe not going out and sticking a ruler in the ground, but you're taking a core of the snow all the way down to the ground and melting it and seeing how much water you have there. And that's something that we've been doing for almost a century in some places in the Western US and British Columbia, again, to inform these really crucial water supply forecasts. Um, but that has its limitations because snow is often accumulating far away in rugged terrain up in the mountains where it's difficult to take measurements or things vary so much, even on small scales. So we have other ways of getting a more complete picture of snow, at least spatially. We can also try to observe it from space using satellites and remote sensing, but that has a host of challenges with it. Um, we can model what snow might be based on things that we have better observations of, like temperature and precipitation. And the upshot of it is that we have a bunch of different ways of estimating the depth of snow on the ground, the amount of water that it contains, but because of the challenges associated with each of them, all of these different estimates, all of these different data sets don't necessarily agree with one another that well, either on just the actual magnitude, the mass of snow on the ground at any point in time, or even its long-term trends and variability through time. And only about a third of the major river basins of the Northern Hemisphere do all of the data sets that we look at even agree very clearly on the really simple question of whether snow has been increasing or decreasing over the last 40 years. Well, and so during this process, um, you go through a lot of different elements. And for this paper, Alex, you also look at what's called a snow loss cliff. So can you explain what that is? Sure. So the idea of this snow loss cliff is we are trying to untangle the puzzle of why are some places like where we're sitting right now in, I believe we're both in the Connecticut River Basin. I'm a little further upstream up in New Hampshire and you all might be down in Connecticut. Why are places like that? Why have we seen really dramatic snow losses over the last 40 years or so with even a modest amount of warming? While in a lot of the other places that we look at around the Northern Hemisphere, we've seen very little change in snow or even modest increases in snow in some places. And so the question was, you know, why are some places so much more sensitive to warming than others? And what we find is this really striking nonlinear relationship where how sensitive your snowpack is to warming is really strongly a function of how cold your winters are on average. So in places that are incredibly cold, colder than about 
17 degrees Fahrenheit on average in the wintertime from November through March, you can warm a little bit and not a whole lot is going to happen to your snowpack because it's so cold that you warm a degree and it's still pretty likely that your wintertime precipitation is going to be snow instead of rain. It's unlikely that you're going to get these really warm thaws that might melt out snow that's accumulated on the ground. And so you can warm a bit and your snowpack will be pretty stable. But as you get above this 17 degree threshold for your average winter temperature, your snowpack becomes increasingly sensitive to warming. So you can warm a bit and then the likelihood that that same storm that had previously been dropping snow is instead dropping rain or you get these thaws that melt out snow on the ground, that likelihood starts to increase exponentially as you warm beyond this 17 degree threshold, which means that each additional bit of warming beyond this threshold or this snow loss cliff, as we call it, is going to take on average a larger and larger chunk of your snowpack. So if you're somewhere like where we are now, whose average winter temperatures are well to the right of this threshold or considerably warmer than 17 degrees in the winter, then even modest amounts of warming can cause really dramatic losses in your snowpack, which is what we've been observing here in the northern New England over the last 40 years. And so with what you're just describing, Alex, it sounds like with each warming degree, the impact on the snowpack loss, it seems like it's more and more. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. So if you're somewhere around where our average wintertime temperatures are, a degree of warming might take 20% of your snowpack. But then the next degree beyond that might take 25 to 30. And so what you get are these really rapidly accelerating losses where those losses with each additional bit of warming are taking more and more of your snowpack on average. And so, Justin, especially with what Alex just shared, you know, we've been talking a lot about you know, the, the loss of snowpacks and getting more precip- precipitation. So how might changing weather or atmospheric patterns like El Nino add to this? Yeah, there, there's a few different ways, right? Snow is this this mix of of not just favorable temperature conditions, right? It's being cold enough, but also you you need to have wintertime precipitation. And for a place like New England, you know, each month of the year, um, New England gets about the same amount of precipitation, and and all wintertime really does is is change the form of that precipitation, increasing the fraction of that that's falling as as snow and and hopefully accumulating on the ground um but when we think about the impact of global warming writ large right its tendency is going to be to warm places um and that's incredibly well documented and i would encourage listeners to to look at the fifth national climate assessment which just came out this past fall and also the uh, um the intergovernmental panel on climate changes uh six assessment report which came out in in 2021 um, which are these synthetic reports that uh, that um, are essentially distilling the state of the science on on climate change and um, and its impacts. Um, you know, and and we we've we've warmed uh, a bit over a degree. Twenty twenty three is now at least according to a, a number of observational records the the warmest um, year on record, um, and a good fraction of of that record warming uh, is in part attributable to the El Nino event that is ongoing right now um, that that began in in the fall. Um, El Nino is a weather phenomenon. Um, Essentially what happens is is a bunch of warm water that tends to be piled up over in Indonesia and and kind of the um, 
Western tropical Pacific um, sloshes eastward um, into the Eastern tropical Pacific. And in doing so, essentially reconfigures the way energy, um, in particular heat, is um, distributed around our planet. And we experience that redistribution as weather. And many of the impacts of El Nino, um, which is something we, we've documented in other work from, from our research group, um, look those those impacts from El Nino, you know, droughts, floods, heat waves, they look a lot like the impacts of global warming. And so the tendency of an El Nino event when it occurs on a planet that has warmed is its tendency is to amplify the wider impacts of global warming. And I and I think we're seeing that um, you know, th- this year in particular, as 2023 became the hottest year on record. And and we have Pretty clear expectations that 2024 will look uh, quite similar. Um, so El Nino occurs in absence of people in their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so it is a form of variation in the climate system that is going to impact people um, depending on how robustly adapted they are to its impacts. Um, but it, but its tendency is, is going to be to enhance the intensity of storms. Um, and when we think about, you know, how that that mix of temperature and precipitation variation shapes snowpack on the ground, you know, I think we can use the Connecticut River Basin as, as an example. Um, anthropogenic global warming, right? So human-caused global warming, according to our documentation, has caused about a 10% decline in snowpack in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, but temperature ha- uh, changes have have caused a a nearly 12% decline, right? Um, And the reason that the total effect of anthropogenic warming is not simply a 12% decline in snowpack for the Connecticut River um, is because anthropogenic warming has enhanced precipitation. So the tendency of warming is also to increase moisture availability in the atmosphere, which means more water to be released when storms occur in the form of precipitation. And so if you have enhanced precipitation in winter storms, uh, you're likely to also get enhanced snowfall. Um, and so global warming has this confounding effect where on the one hand, the warming itself melts snow, right? And maybe reduces the fraction of, of precipitation falling as snow. But on the other hand, it also enhances water vapor in the atmosphere, which when temperatures are favorable on the day that it happens to to have a storm, um, you're just going to get enhanced snowfall and you need to reconcile those two effects. And that's what we've done in, in, in this analysis, whereby, you know, the anthropogenic effects on precipitation have, um, you know, um, caused a, uh, a decline of about what, 2% or something like that in the Connecticut river Valley. Um, temperature is a 12% decline. Um, and, and we're looking at it, total anthropogenic effects of, of a 10% decline in snowpack. And so it's really about getting the, these mixes correctly um, in order to make an assessment of, of snow change um, and, and attribute that to our human emissions of greenhouse gases. And Alex, before we go to break, I want to I want to give you one more question here, basically related to what Justin was just painting this picture of, you know, amplification of of 
rainfall and and the lack of snow and kind of experiencing sort of extreme weather in, on the spectrum. And we talked about a little bit on a water security perspective and when it comes to snow loss impact. But can you talk about overall, you know, how does snow loss impact the environment and the ecosystem? Sure. It really depends on where you are. The losses of snow loss are the impacts of snow loss are felt very differently in different places in places like the western United States, where it's a really crucial part of the water supply. Those water security concerns are going to be paramount because you no longer have this great natural reservoir accumulating water in the mountains in the winter and releasing it in the spring and summer. Where we are, as Justin said, we get precipitation year round. Maybe those aren't of paramount concern, but we have entire local economies built around this idea of there's a persistent snowpack through the winter, things like winter recreation, forestry, which requires good frozen ground and snow to be able to get out in the woods, and a whole host of ecosystem impacts for all of the plant and animal species that have, again, evolved with this expectation of what winters look like as generally cold and with a persistent snowpack that are having that change really rapidly. You've been listening yeah, to... Think, oh, go. Oh, finish your quick thought, Justin. Yeah, I mean, I think just to summarize for listeners, I think that the simple way to think about this is that people assume that snow is easy to measure, that it simply uh, declines with warming, um, and that snow loss implies the same set of impacts everywhere, and that's just not the case. Well, thanks for that summary, Justin. You've been listening to Justin Mankin, who's an associate professor of geography at Dartmouth. You've also been listening to Alex Gottlieb. He's a PhD candidate in the, at Dartmouth College as well. Coming up next, we hear from we hear what snow loss means for the ski and snow sport industry in our state and how snow loss can impact our emotional health. Stay with us. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Less snow can mean a lot of things, including a big impact on winter sports. Joining us now is Laura Lofredo. She's the Director of Sales and Marketing at the Powder Ridge Mountain Park and Resort and Brownstone Adventures Sports Park in Middlefield, Connecticut. Laura, welcome to where we live today. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. And still with us is Alex Gottlieb, who's a PhD candidate in ecology, evolution, and society at Dartmouth College, as well as Justin Mankin, who is a Dartmouth College Associate Professor of Geography. And for our listeners, you can join the conversation. Let us know if you're seeing less snow around where you live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Laura, you've been following along the conversation. Can you respond to what we've heard so far? Was there anything that either Justin or Alex has mentioned that jumped out to you specifically? Well, more depressed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the more knowledge, right? Um, that is true. Yeah, you know, it, it really is uh, quite impactful for us, uh, particularly all the data they just gave. But because we are a very southern Connecticut mountain, that impact of degrees really makes a difference for us. And so with the impacts, you know, with the trends that we've been seeing over the last couple of years, you know, how have you seen winters at the resort change over the years? Uh, for us, it's basically being able to make the snow, right? Mother Nature has not been giving it to us over the last couple of years. Uh, and then when we do, we do get that warming, we get that rain on top of it, which, you know, uh, pretty much immediately takes away unless we can get a really good snowpack down. So, um, of course, this last week was phenomenal because we had five or six days of just really cold weather where we can make snow. But the impact is less trails, less trails for people to ski on. We also offer uh, snow tubing, and uh, that has sustained us quite a bit throughout the winter months as a new business model. And I know there's been so much flexibility that's needed when when it comes to having a winter sports business. And, and we know skiing is already sort of a luxury activity. It can be quite pricey to, to go skiing. So with this increasing snow loss and having to sort of be flexible in what you can offer, you know, are you afraid that less and less people are going to have access to winter sports? No. No, we really aren't. We are, we consider ourselves a learning mountain. So we are focused on teaching not only the young, but adults to ski and board. And I think we can keep ourselves very affordable here in Connecticut. It's, you know, you're not going to a destination. If you treat it as a home, uh, your home mountain, um, it becomes a very affordable uh, situation compared to if our Connecticut people, folks were to go up to north, you know, north to Vermont and New Hampshire. But because we really do focus our business model on teaching skiing and boarding, uh, we have not seen a decline in that at all. Well, that's really good to hear. And, and I think we, we hear a lot about ski resorts creating their own snow when when that's needed. But I want to also touch on the idea of, of slush. You know, you mentioned snow tubing earlier. Clearly, I think I'm going to sound like I'm not a winter sports person, but yeah. is is uh, tubing easier for slush when it comes to when it comes to that kind of snow? Or how does that work? And is, is that potentially part of a long term solution for you, maybe? Uh, I don't know if it's a long term solution, but you're, you're right. We can get away with a lot more than if you're on skis or riding in a board. When you're on a tube, we can switch over the, the covers on the bottom of them to, you know, a hard cover or a soft cover, depending on ice and water. You know, in Connecticut, we are pretty much uh, experienced on learning how to deal with the different ice pack, slush, 
you know, it changes. Our, our snow pack changes dramatically throughout the season. And I guess with with that kind of knowledge, and you um, you go into the season knowing that perhaps you have to make some changes and and some long term you know strategizing. You know, what are some ways that you've had to you know move forward to diversify the business? Well, we took a couple of giant steps. You know, again because our our mountains up in Connecticut that are further north than us can be blown snow. Um, on days where we're a couple of degrees different and we we can't turn on the guns. Um, so we, uh, I think two or three years ago, we actually tried synthetic snow. It's quite popular over in Europe. And we brought that in with limited success. This year, we have invested in what we call the snow factory. And it literally can make snow in 75 degree weather if we want it. Now, we're not going to do that. But it's absolutely a game changer for us to be able to have that snow, particularly for tubing, a couple of skiing runs and boarding runs, uh, as early as Black Friday. Wow. Which, yeah, which, you know, typically we wouldn't be starting our ski season until Christmas if we were lucky. Well, I'm kind of smiling here because, ironically, I've had my first snowboarding experience on man-made snow in California, where the weather was definitely not like the weather here in Connecticut. <laughs> so um, I'm glad to hear that. At least that's that can be helpful for you in terms of getting more snowpack for the business. Uh, Justin, I want to bring you in real quick because it sounds like with what you, both you and Alex have shared earlier, it, we might not be getting as much snow as usual, but we are still getting precipitation through rain and slush. So do we know about how this will impact the environment and ecosystem when we are getting rain instead of snow? Gosh, uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think we have some hypotheses about the effects of an increase in in winter rains, right? That you know, it's a big it's a big climate shift to suddenly go from being having a snow dominated winter to having a rain dominated winter, um, or some mix where you have quite damaging rain on snow events, which can present a host of flood hazards um, and um, create icing conditions that are really uh, dangerous for the transport sector and commuters. On Connecticut roads, um, you have the potential for downing power lines by affecting tree limbs um, with those types of events. So, you know, there, there's just kind of the the immediate kind of proximate hazards associated with with a change in in those climate conditions in winter. I think that you know what we know pretty well from work like Alex has pursued in other contexts is that the impacts of snow loss don't just, you know, keep themselves, limit themselves to the winter time. They they can propagate throughout the calendar year. And so, you know, low snow conditions in Connecticut may have consequences for what springtime looks like and what summertime looks like in the sets of climate conditions and ecosystem conditions there. Um, so, you know, when you think about the role of snowpack for a forested ecosystem, um, you know, it's it's protecting root structures in, uh, in the forest mat. It's, um, you know, when it melts, it's providing a, a pulse of nutrients into riverine ecosystems. 
Um, and, you know, crucially for um, Connecticut residents, in particular, where one in, in three households relies on a groundwater well, um, it provides uh, really much needed aquifer recharge. Um, and we don't have a great sense of how uh, an increasing fraction of winter precipitation falling as rain rather than snow, what the implications are for those sets of systems and, and what that means for groundwater availability, um, what it means for ecosystem health, um, the propensity for heat waves and droughts later in the spring and summer, um, what it might mean for agriculture. Um, and in particular, something that we've seen the last few years affecting the East Coast of the United States are, are, is uh, wildfire smoke. Um, and so I think there are some important investigations to be undertaken by the scientific community to understand precisely how um, snow loss propagates into the sets of droughts that um, provide the kindling for these incredibly damaging wildfires. Um, and these wildfires have impacts well beyond simply their fire perimeters, right? They, they create particulate matter loadings in the atmosphere that are incredibly damaging to people's health, um, particularly the most vulnerable among us. Um, and, and it is our expectation that one of the most widely felt impacts of global warming will be wildfire smoke. And, and so I think these, this, this snow loss drought wildfire cascade is, is something that, um, we're, we're trying to understand. So Alex, you know, Justin here just described a vast array of consequences when it comes to to warming and you also talked about the snow loss cliff earlier. You know, is there any way to reverse the snow loss cliff? It sounds all pretty a little scary. Right. I think the key with that snow loss cliff is that it is how sensitive your snowpack is to warming, how much of your snow you can expect to lose with an additional degree of warming. So insofar as we can dramatically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from the burning of fossil fuels and transition to cleaner energy sources and limit the amount of warming that we experience in the future, that is far and away going to be the most significant way that we can not halt further losses or reverse the losses that we've seen to date, at least in the short to medium term, but prevent these really dramatic and accelerating losses is limiting the amount of warming that we experience in the future, which is directly tied to how quickly we decarbonize our economies. And of course, you study snow as a scientist, but anecdotally, you know, what, what do you think about the emotional impact of snow is, Alex? It's hard. You know, I'm at a phase of life where a lot of close friends are having kids or already have small kids and they know I study snow and I have repeatedly had the conversation of people asking me whether or not it's worth it to teach their kids how to ski, which is something that has been a huge part of their life. Right. And it's just really heartbreaking to hear. I mean, I'll be very clear that you know, the loss of a shorter ski season in the winter is far from the greatest tragedy of climate change. It is, at the end of the day, a form of recreation and overwhelmingly a fairly white and affluent one. And, you know, it is far from the biggest tragedy of climate change. But at the same time, it is really the way that I've seen people kind of grapple with this idea that the sets of 
options and opportunities and challenges that their children and their future generations are going to face are going to be fundamentally different from what they had available to them. And so like I started this conversation with, it's this thing that we have a really strong emotional attachment to and sets of cultural traditions associated with and watching, you know, friends and my own family kind of grapple with what the loss of that looks like is just really, really challenging. And Justin, can you respond to this quickly as well? Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm a parent of two children, both of whom are are skiers, um, and they ski on the same mountain that I I raced on as a as a child, um, and you know, it, there's there's sometimes wisdom in anecdote, and and um, you know, the anecdotal evidence I've seen is is that it's more costly and more difficult for my local mountain to make snow and um, keep runs open for people. And I, th I think, you know, that that idea of their business model being squeezed into a, a shorter season and, you know, kind of coming up against the tension of the critical role that these little mountains play um, uh, as a, a source for community building um, and, um, you know, for for being out in the world and, and being out in nature, you know, it's it's definitely tragic and i think it's it's emblematic of the ways that you know even for what we think of you know as a resource endowed industry something like 20 billion dollars us in the us uh, is is like the ski industry worth each year um you know it's 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 emblematic of of the way global warming always targets the most vulnerable among us right it's it's not these multi-million dollar high, you know, or billion dollar even, um, resorts, um, that are at high latitudes and high elevations that are going to be damaged by global warming the most, it's going to be, you know, these low latitudes, smaller mountains that play this crucial, crucial role within the local economy and for the people that rely on them. And Laura, before we go to break, I want to ask you a final question here, especially with Justin and Alex just shared. And you talked about earlier, too, that you're not expecting people or less people to come to ski because of that emotional attachment. And with these little mountains having big roles, you know, can you talk a, a little bit about the benefits of having a winter sport and being active in winter? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it is really um, quite amazing um, to see people come onto the mountain and enjoy the snow with their families. We have a what we call the snow play area where it's teaching kids to ski on very small little terrain built mounds and hills and ramps. So it, it, that impact on the families is, is amazing to watch. And it's so crucial to have within our community still. <clears throat> and it also, excuse me, speaks to the businesses surrounding us uh, as they just touched on. Um, I think the impact of a small local ski resort is paramount. You've been listening to Laura Lafredo. She's the director of sales and marketing at Powder Ridge Mountain Park and Resort and Brownstone Adventure Sports Park. Thank you so much, Laura, for being with us today. You're welcome. You are also listening to Alex Gottlieb. He's a PhD candidate at Dartmouth College and Justin Mankin, who's an associate professor at, of geography at Dartmouth College. Thank you both for being on where we live today. Thanks so much Thank for having you. us, Catherine. Coming up next, we talk a bit about how lack of snow is impacting us emotionally. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The winter season could be a tough time of the year since we're not as active and we're getting less sunlight. We know the seasons, the weather, and changing climate can impact our mental health. And slow loss means we might not be able to enjoy the same level of activity in the colder months than what we're used to. And joining us to unpack all the ways our climate is impacting us is Dr. Karen Steinberg-Gallucci. She's an associate professor of psychiatry and public health sciences at UConn Health. Karen, thank you so much for joining Where We Live today. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. And so can we start the conversation by having you give us an idea of what seasonal depression looks like and some of the symptoms? Sure. Um, so, yes, yeah, seasonal affective disorder is different than something, you know, like the winter blues where people are just kind of feeling down about the colder months and the lack of sunlight. This would be something that um, is more persistent and um, where people are noticing um, a lack of energy, uh, depressed or empty mood. Um, they might find themselves not um, interested or in or enjoying some of the activities they ordinarily would. Um, they might be sleeping more, um, feeling um, a sense of hopelessness. They might have, um, you know, just feel overwhelmed and just um, have more difficulty with um, connecting with others and things that would ordinarily brighten their mood. And how is this changing or related to climate change and eco-anxiety? Because I've, I think you know, climate change and eco-anxiety may or may not be new for, for some people, but we are getting more and more knowledge and information about both as the years go by. So I'm curious to hear you know, if that has been a major change you know, in, in people's sort of experience with seasonal depression. Is that something that you're experiencing through your conversations with, with friends and family? Yes, um, that's a great question. And I am definitely in my clinical practice, um, hearing more concerns that people have about climate change, changes to their lifestyle as a result. Um, and so and there are these kind of concepts that have developed or to characterize some of the emotional impacts of climate change. And so what we're hearing about earlier with the with the snow loss and other things, um, there is this sense of the, this concept of solastalgia. Um, you've heard of nostalgia, which is like a homesickness or longing for, you know, a, a loved home or place or, or situation. Solastalgia is the distress that is experienced with um, by environmental change that impacts people when they are connected to their their environment, but they um, it's no longer what it once was, and that people um, seem to have this experience of melancholia or longing for what once was, and I feel like that that kind of captures what we've been talking about with the snow loss, but certainly other profound environmental changes, and that we've seen the devastation of drought or wildfires or. Ex- all kinds of extreme weather on people around the globe. Now, this is not considered a mental disorder per se. These are maybe normal responses to these significant um, environmental impacts, but people can experience anxiety, depression, a sense of um, 
hopelessness, helplessness, uh, anxiety about the future and their ability to to impact it. And you mentioning solastalgia, you know, can you talk about the emotional impact of not having the familiarity of the seasons we once had? You know, that's, I think, slowly becoming more and more on the forefront of our minds. I mean, we're having this conversation today. Yeah, exactly. I think I think anything that changes our sort of, you know, our expectations. And we know that anxiety is made worse by situations that are that are unpredictable and that feel out of our control. And I think climate change ha- has both of those characteristics, unfortunately, um, uh, where people uh, sort of don't know what's coming next and they don't have a sense of agency, you know, about being able to do something about it. Um, but that's where we can look for some opportunities and some ways that people may be able to transform some of these these negative feelings. And on that note, do you have any advice for people that might be navigating these feelings of eco-anxiety and, and seasonal depression? You know, especially, you know, you mentioned snow loss. We had just heard a lot of information about snow loss and how that impacts both our, you know, physical and mental state. So any advice you can have, you can give to people? Well, I think anything that helps people feel, um, you know, uh, get a, a new perspective or an ability to see themselves of ha- as having an impact on their future. There have been some interesting studies with the in the with echo anxiety area where people have looked at um, helping children get involved in some collective action, um, you know, maybe raising awareness or doing education around climate change. And that seemed to buffer against some of this echo anxiety. And similarly with depression, things that get people more active um, having a sense of control over over their life and their activities, and connecting with others, all of these things. You know, people um, feel worse when they are isolated. And it's something we see, like with the seasonal affective disorder, that people may withdraw more from others, from social contacts, and this can exacerbate a sense of isolation and loneliness. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, how, you know, it can be really difficult to not fall into fatalism. So can you talk more about the emotional impact of, since we're talking about snow loss, of of losing snow in particular? You know, could this create even more fatalism around climate change, you think? I think, yes, I think along with all of these other significant climate impacts, I think, you know, um, sort of looking around, seeing the changes, seeing the news reports, one can become fatalistic and um, and feel a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And that's why I think it really does take some conscious and concerted effort to try to uh, maybe use these feelings or these experiences and try to transform them into some kind of constructive action, um, whether it's trying to... Um, kind of garner support and momentum for making changes for reducing, you know, the carbonization that our scientists were talking about earlier, um, for connecting with others who may be isolated and impacted more severely by some of these events. Um, And so feeling that one has a sense of agency and ability to, to make change, make actual practical changes, and also transform their own emotional state. 
Well, we got about a minute here left, but I want to ask, you know, is there anything particular that you hope our listeners will get out from this conversation? I know we talked a lot about how difficult things can be, but there's also a sense of hope you have, I think. Yeah, I think there always is because there's always the opportunity to to step back, to sort of look from um, from the mountaintop and see things from a variety of perspectives <clears throat> and see oneself as having more capability, more ability to take action and make changes. Thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Dr. Karen Steinberg-Gallucci. She's an associate professor of psychiatry and public health sciences at UConn Health. Thank you so much, Karen, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Dylan Reyes. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.